being you is just so fun for me. I, um, today, we're in this series. It's like a four-week series on neighboring. And the passage of scripture that we're using as a primary text for us is actually in uh, Mark chapter 12 in verse 29 and 30 where Jesus is asked what the greatest command is and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so we're, we're, we're looking at that and we came out of a 70-week series through the book of Mark into a four-week series. What's that? Why are we doing this? And I wanna tell you, at the week after next week, I'm gonna announce today that we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes for 12 weeks together. Um, which is gonna be so fun, yeah. I love that you're wooing that. That just makes my heart go pitter-patter. The pastor heart, whatever, whatever that is, it just went boom. Um, we actually, uh, in two weeks, are gonna hand out like the whole syllabus of it all to, to everybody so we can really be in it together. Um, but we're in week three of this, and we're gonna be in Luke chapter 19. We're taking the words of Jesus seriously, and so if you, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. It will be on the screen, but um, why are we going through this series? And he, I just wanna say it as plainly as I can. You see it written on the wall. If you ever walked into this building, it says on the wall that we uh, seek to be a community, a group of people who are radically committed to spiritual formation for the sake of others. Simply said, if we are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and we were to transport our 21st century minds into the first century, we want to be like our rabbi, Jesus. And so when we talk about formation, that's what we're talking about, being formed into the character of Jesus. So here's the question. Anybody remember WWJD? Anybody remember that? What would Jesus do? My daughter, Sophia, actually wears a bracelet. Says Sometimes it says WWJD because she found it in a box. It was mine when I was a teenager. I remember driving around listening to, what would people say if then? Um, some of us remember that. Uh, some of you, like maybe you go back to Keith Green. Anybody? Come on. Um, I love Keith Green. And... And it, the question is, what would, what would Jesus do? That's, that's what it means. And actually, it comes from a book that was published in 1897 in his steps. And, and the book, instead of even saying, what would Jesus do? The, I, I, Jesus was a, a single man in the first century, a rabbi. There's a lot of things Jesus did that you, you wouldn't do in your life now. But a, a really great, great question to ask is, if Jesus had your life, what would he do and how would he live and so what, what we seek to do as a church family, I'm all about metaphors, you know that. But we wanna move past living into a vision metaphorically to actually asking the question, how does this vision of being a disciple of Jesus that makes disciples, being formed into the image of Christ, being committed to being formed into the image of Christ radically for the sake of others, how does that actually meet us in our everyday life? Uh, in our comings and our goings and the work we do and the life we lived. And so over the past weeks, you received a, a piece of paper. And if you didn't, it's fine because it's this easy to draw. Even I can do it. It looks like tic-tac-toe, um, just like that. And this, uh, we've looked at as a neighborhood grid. And we've said that you, that your home, the place that you live, isn't that good? The place that you live that actually you're there on purpose. And that our lives 
are to be embedded in society so that we can be bringers of the kingdom of God. Not, not people who just participate and receive good services on the weekend. We gather together out of obedience as a church family. We gather around the presence and the word of God. This is important. This is an important part of our rhythm to worship together, an extremely important part. But then we go as the people of God to, to live as the people of God in our neighborhoods. And, and so that, that's the whole, and, and so what this represents, if you weren't here, is that these are the houses uh, around you. And, and there's um, this house, which looks like a T, and, uh, <laughs> and there's this house, which looks a lot like um, the house above it, and, uh, and there's a house here. And, and, and the questions we've been asking is this, the first week with Tom is, do you know your neighbors? Do, do, you, do you actually even know names or stories about people? Not to heap guilt on. One thing I've been praying coming into this weekend is, Lord, will you lift any sort of guilt that we experience through a series like this where we're talking about our everyday lives, that guilt that can set in when we see not the invitation into something, but we see everything we haven't done up to this point. That's not the point of this. So everybody take a collective deep breath. Go ahead. Just, huh. Relax a little bit. This is an invitation to see your actual neighbors differently. That we would move past even the idea of a metaphorical neighbor. Yeah, I'm gonna love my neighbors. To actually names and faces. So week one was, do we know our neighbor? Tom shared about the Good Samaritan. Last week, Katie, or I'm sorry, Jen shared about praying for our neighbors, that we would be a people of prayer in our neighborhoods. And today, I'm gonna to wanna to share with you a, a message about being a person of invitation in our, in our neighborhoods um, with our neighbors. And so let me start with, with this, talking a little bit about our culture here in the 21st century. According to uh, tw- a 2019 study by Barna, uh, we are number 48 of the most, this is the Twin Cities, of the most post-Christian cities in America. Post-Christian. Now, when you hear the term post-Christian, a lot of things that can come to, come to mind, and so I wanna give it a little bit of clarity here. There's a sociologist, Philip Reef, who came up with the term, and he divided Western history into three different segments or three different categories. The first one was, is pre-Christian, and that idea is you think of like ancient Ireland or, or England before the gospel, things like slavery or child sacrifice or worshiping all sorts of idols was very normal in, in the pre-Christian era, and then you think about what I, I think like the Christianized culture, I'll say that, because the Christian culture, the Christian era, nothing, nothing in a worldly culture is purely Christian. It's always Christian and paganism or Christian and secularism, but there is a sense that there has been, in, according to this sociologist, a time where cultural norms flowed towards the way of Jesus in many ways, rather than away. And then there's the third category, which is post-Christian. And what this, this post-Christian idea means, it actually doesn't mean that we're moving into a time or we're in a time where, um, where Christianity will cease to influence. It doesn't mean that. In fact, our Western culture uh, really, the values that we love, and we've done some work on this as a church family, are around justice and equality, even some things as basic as, 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 as the desire to, for everyone to have health care or education, those things did not actually exist before Jesus and his church moving worldwide. Uh, those things didn't exist. There's all sorts of uh, 
great historical literature out there. I've quoted Dominion by Tom Holland before, a secular historian who does this work, um, that we are swimming in values that are connected to Jesus, whether we give Jesus the credit or not. And I know it's imperfect, because we have all sorts of uh, expressions of that all around and all sorts of, yes, but in the sense, we're here because we live in a free society and are able to worship how we want. And, and, and much of that is good and much of that flows back actually to the person in the way of Jesus. And there's a key point I wanna highlight here as we move on and then we'll contrast it with scripture in a little bit. That the post-Christian idea as this sociologist brings up is this, is that it's a reaction against Christian culture. It was born out of a reaction against Christian culture. In other words, it's why many of our friends who are not open to Jesus are open to other forms of spirituality. Um, Buddhism and mindfulness and even, even Islam and Judaism and, and there are um, people in our culture that are so open to other forms of spirituality, but there is a resistance that's building against the way of Jesus. It is a reaction, actually, to a Christian culture that in many ways, if we look at it from a world perspective, is broken, right? It's confusing. I get it in some ways. But, the, so, but that's the key point. And, and here's the question I'd like to ask before we go into the text, and it's this. How do we invite people to follow Jesus with us in a post-Christian culture? How do we do it? No doubt there are people that you love, that you want to join you on the journey of following Jesus, but it just feels so awkward to even broach the conversation. How do we do it in our day and age? And so there are different um, strategies we could have. One option would be don't. Just don't do it. Um, blend into suburban culture. Wall up your home and just keep your private faith to yourself and worship on the weekends with your church family. Another option, another option is, option two we'll call it, is edit the way of Jesus, update it to the progressive world, take out the uncomfortable parts, make it politically correct and then move forward that way. But the question that I am asking today as we go into this text is, is there actually a third way? Is there a practice of Jesus that we see in scripture that transcends space and time and culture in the first century? And I'd like to uh, make a case that there is. There's a third way that we can go about this as a church family together. Luke chapter 19, verses one through 10, is the story of Zacchaeus. I love this story. If you haven't heard it, um, it's great. Uh, let's start at verse one, and you can f- let's follow along together. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector who was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was because he was short, Uh, He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll repay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, 
is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so this is a, a story where you have a man who couldn't see over the crowd. In fact, in, in verse three, it says Zacchaeus, so he, it says he couldn't see over the crowd. Actually, that word he is a pronoun. We don't actually know if it's talking about Zacchaeus or Jesus. Jesus couldn't see over the crowd in that specific instance. Mind blown. Um, but Zacchaeus was short. He climbed a tree and, and he said that Jesus actually initiated with Zacchaeus and said, um, because Jesus knew who he was. So he called him by name and, and he, no doubt, he was a tax collector so, and he was a chief tax collector so Jesus probably knew his name and reputation and then he sees a man potentially running. If he doesn't see him running, he at least sees him climb a tree and it's a really odd thing to do. So Jesus sees his faith. Jesus initiates, initiates with Zacchaeus. Uh, Jesus doesn't have a home and Zacchaeus does. I, I'm gonna come over to your house and eat and here's what's, beautiful. It says in verse six, Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly, welcomed Jesus gladly. Now, in that culture, this is profound PDA, as we'll talk about in a second. This is a, a public display of affection that is just unheard of in that time. And, and then in verse eight, this man who had everything was really rich, Zacchaeus, he started giving his stuff away and making the wrong things in his life right. And Jesus says this term that he doesn't use anywhere else in scripture, Today, salvation has come. Jesus, this is the one place where Jesus looks at somebody and says, that's what salvation looks like. Isn't it wild? And what does it look like? It looks like a man who used to see his stuff as stuff he owned, who was building a life for himself. Jesus interrupted his life, his life that was littered with sin and deception. The man is experiencing freedom to the point that he has seen his stuff. His heart has changed to the point that outwardly he sees everything he owns completely different and begins to use it differently, to right the wrongs from the past, to care for the poor. And Jesus says, that's what salvation looks like. It's a beautiful story. Today, salvation has come. And, um, and so this, this story here is a really sweet story, uh, but it's way more than just a cute story with a cute song attached to it. A wee little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore. You know it? No? Maybe? You do? Yeah, you know. We know it. Come on. Um, next week we'll add it in the set. You and I will sing it together. Um, so... This is even worse than being politically incorrect, though. This story is it's just, it's dangerous. What happens here is dangerous. And for two reasons I'd like to point out today. One is because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And two, because of a theological term called table fellowship. So we're gonna start with the first one. The first one is that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. I wanna talk very briefly about what that means. If, if you were a tax collector for Rome in a Jewish culture, that means that you collected taxes for the Roman government from the Jewish people. And you were looked at, especially if you were a Jewish person, you were looked at as the ultimate betrayer, um, that you would actually do that. And a tax collector, if they collected a tax from Rome, let's say it was 40%, they could add whatever percentage they wanted on top of that and keep it for themselves. So if I was coming to you to tax you, you're walking down the street, you just caught some fish, uh, I'm gonna take taxes from you, 
and then whatever I take above that will just be what. So this man made a living off of taking advantage of his own people. And if you crossed him, he had the power of Rome behind him. So he was, in a sense, a wicked man. Now, <clears throat> that being said, here's, here's what's interesting. Like, we see Jesus, and, and we see them say, Jesus, Jesus ate with sinners. And we're like, yeah, go, Jesus. You ate with sinners. Isn't that cool? Like, Jesus would just eat with people that were just normal people like you and me. And, and we can see it through this different lens in our day and age. Like, I think it's cool that, like, Jesus hung out with, you know, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and invited them. And, I, and, and we can sort of romanticize it. But I want to do a, a little bit of an exercise for a moment, um, a little bit of a, of a thought experiment. Uh, if a tax collector was at the bottom of the moral totem pole in that day, who would be at the bottom of the moral totem pole in your mind? Um, would it be a racist or a terrorist or a pedophile? I know, even these words make us feel uncomfortable. Now here's the question. How would you respond if you saw Jesus eating with one of them? Would you feel uncomfortable? Would you feel confused seeing Jesus like laugh and hang out with and share a steak with? Like how would you feel about that? That's how they felt back then. Jesus eating with this person who is in a sense the source of their oppression, taking advantage of his own people for his own wealthy gain. Um, that's how they viewed somebody like, like Zacchaeus. And so the second one is table fellowship. And I wanna pause here for a moment and talk through this. Table fellowship is, is this, like we, we eat with people generally that are like us. Many of the people we share dinner with, not, not all the time, but much of the time are people from the same socioeconomic sort of background as us. Many times it's people that look like us. Uh, that reality actually has been a general truth for every culture throughout human history. We share meals with people who are like us. And, and, and so now to rewind back in that day, Israel was in, up to Jesus, was in four, uh, 400 years before Jesus, was in exile to Babylon, a thousand miles to the east. And, and there, when they were in exile, their temple was destroyed. Their sacrificial system ended. The priesthood was eliminated. And so I want to ask a really obvious question here. And if you've read through um, some of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, specifically Leviticus, you read through that and you see all these laws and things and it's kind of confusing. The question is this. How could a, a Torah-believing Jewish person continue to be Jewish and continue to follow the law without a temple, without the priesthood, and without the sacrificial system. And the question is, they can't do it. If you read through it yourself, it's a wonderful read, great bedtime read if you want to get into that. You can't do it. 
And so this brings up a cultural phenomenon in that day that I find so, so fascinating. The religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were actually, for much of Jewish history, that when they were on the map, were, were the good guys. In fact, we believe that Jesus was a Pharisee and that all the struggle with the Pharisees was an internal struggle. I mean, they, yes, it got twisted. Yes, it, it turned in on itself in some nasty religious ways. Yes, but these They were trying to save the Jewish people, in a sense, and and they had to reinvent Judaism. And so here's some things. This is the world Jesus lived in. They reinvented it so they could keep the Torah in this way. They don't have a temple, but your home is the new temple. They don't have an altar anymore for sacrifices, but your table is the new altar. They don't have priests in the same way, but the father of the house is the priest. And they don't have a sacrifice, but the meal that you eat every day is the sacrifice. And at this time, two-thirds of the Jewish people didn't live in Israel. Uh, One-third of the Jewish people did. And so, and the ones who did uh, were under Roman rule, so they considered themselves still in exile. And, and, and so the thought was, was this, um, with the Pharisees and religious leaders, that what got them into exile According to scripture, in the first place, um, we, we read it, what got them into exile was sin, and what will get them out of exile is sinlessness. Good, good luck, right? And so they had a hypothesis, and what they believed is this. If they could get all the people of Israel to follow the Torah perfectly in their home for one day, then that would usher in the Messiah, that would set the people free. God's kingdom would be formed on earth, set people free from Roman rule, and they'd be the people of God uh, holy again. One day, they could keep the Torah just one day. All of all the people. So, um, so the Pharisees called for every Jewish person to live in their homes by the commands of the priests of the temple. And here's what this means, and I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Here's what this means. No Gentiles were allowed in your house or at your table, nor were people with special needs or diseases or sinners. Sinners defined in that day as people who don't follow the Torah. So basically, none of you (laughs) would be invited to dinner in that day. (laughs) Me too. Um, In a meal... Listen to this, a meal in that day, and this is where this comes into, begins to come into view. A meal in that day was a boundary set to keep clean things in and unclean things out. Are you tracking? The point is this. A rabbi would never enter Zacchaeus' home, ever. Not only did Jesus enter his home, Jesus publicly <laughs> invited himself in front of everybody. That, that sets revolutionary ripples through the crowd that day. Not only did Jesus invite himself to his home, but what Jesus didn't do, because remember, Zacchaeus, in a sense, is a new follower of Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't walk into his home and draw a boundary around his home and table and say, here's the type of people you can invite in now, and here's the type of people you leave out. Jesus went into Zacchaeus' home, and we know that when Jesus ate, and we see it specifically with Matthew, the tax collector, all were welcome 
to the table. So in, in a sense, for Jesus, meals and homes were not boundaries to keep unclean people out, but to welcome people in. A meal with Jesus was a symbol of God's wide welcome into his kingdom to all. In her book um, called Making Room, Rediscovering Hospitality as a a Christian Tradition, uh, theologian Christine Pohl, she writes this. She says, a shared meal is an activity most closely tied to the reality of the kingdom, just as it is the most basic expression of hospitality. Um, And then let me show you this other quote that'll come on the screen. Jaquim writes this. He said, in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was to offer was an offer of peace and trust, brotherhood and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. And in Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have to share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved table fellowship is the most meaningful expression and message of the redeeming love of God. And we see this. This metaphor is baked into Scripture. Um, The Old Testament in Scripture is centered around Passover, a table. The New Testament, we've talked about this before, is centered around communion, the Eucharist, a table. And in the kingdom to come, we see... We see prophecies in Isaiah where, where it, it looks, and, and in Revelation, where actually the, the God's kingdom breaking in in its fullness, heaven and earth becoming one. When that happens, it's represented by what? A banquet, a table. But here's what I find interesting about metaphors. Uh, metaphors, sometimes we can live in this metaphorical world and it can never meet us in the, in the wood or the metal of our own tables. But when we look at Jesus, a meal was more than a metaphor. It was how Jesus reached people. So I want you to look at this, verse 10. We're gonna bring it on the screen. Are you tracking with me, church family? Verse 10 says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That term, the Son of Man came. Everybody say came. Not the Son of Man, but the Son of Man came. That is only mentioned twice as a line throughout the book of Luke. And and so we see it in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 34. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what it says here. He came eating and drinking. And there's a book uh, that Tim Chester wrote called A Meal with Jesus. Fascinating little read. He makes a point that these two references, Luke demonstrates both Jesus' mission and message. And so here it is. I want to bring it on the screen to show you today Jesus' mission and, and message. So the mission, it's the what. In Luke 19, Jesus came to what? To, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How did the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost? Um, eating and drinking. Fascinating. And we know the cross is what provided salvation, but Jesus' strategy and breaking down the hardness of heart, even leading up to that with the people he came into contact with in everyday life, was arguably eating and drinking. In Luke's gospel, Jesus, um, and this is a quote, Robert Karras, he says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. There's 50 references to food in Luke's gospel, and 94 in Matthew. Can I hear an amen? (laughs) Yes. 
I love it. I want to follow him. And, uh, and he was mistaken for a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners for a reason. Not because he was, but because it was a primary strategy, table fellowship. The point is this. The point is this. We imagine in our post-Christian culture, whatever that means, I tried to make sense of it. Maybe I confused you a little bit. Whatever it means, we're living in a tense time and there is a tension growing towards the way of Jesus. We imagine in our post-Christian culture being more, our post-Christian culture being more hostile to Jesus and religion than his in the first century culture, which just isn't true. Many of these sinners that Jesus hung out with have been oppressed and burned and want nothing to do with religion. So we see one of Jesus' main methods for breaking down the hostile barrier, eating and drinking. In fact, Jesus, um, I, would, I would argue that it was his main, message, uh, main way of evangelizing uh, when he was on this earth, eating and drinking with people who are far from him. To, uh, in conclusion, I want to ask this question um, and just let it sit for a minute. How do you view your home and your table? How do you view it? In our teaching team this week, and this was really beautiful, it came up, this idea that uh, the temple in scriptures, we read it in the Hebrew scriptures, was the dwelling place of God. And we know now that in like 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16 says this, you are the temple of God, you are, and that the spirit of God dwells in you. So a couple questions. If God has made his home with us and we are followers of the way of Jesus, then could it be that our tables are an extension of God's wide and welcoming table to the neighborhoods that we've been placed in, to the lost world? What if we re-envisioned our table as more than a fixture in our home, but an extension of God's kingdom on earth? That our table in here would be an extension to God's kingdom here on earth to the people we're surrounded by. I didn't forget the tea home. <laughs> what if? Fascinating. Um, Rosiah Butterfield wrote this in a, a book great to read on this subject too, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She wrote, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who, le- who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as a family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They are open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. and They know that the gospel comes with a house key. So WWJD, if if your table was an extension of Jesus' table, then who would Jesus invite to the table? And I just want to take a minute, and I didn't bring my table today. I did that once before. Learn my lesson, Drew. And uh, not only did I learn my lesson from hurting my back, but my wife was out of town. I took the dining room table. Um, so today I just took a chair. <laughs> Asked for permission. Actually, she doesn't care. Um, 
because I am staring at this furniture in our home asking the question like, who is waiting on the other side of my obedience? Like who? And so I just want to take a moment um, for you to think about uh, who in your neighborhood might Jesus be highlighting in your mind right now to, maybe you don't even know him yet, to invite over for a meal? Or I know some of you that do bonfires in your front yard and things and welcome people. Whatever the strategy, like to break a threshold, to actually connect with somebody in some way that way. Who is being highlighted in your mind right now? And I would say, don't be surprised if it's somebody, well, some, some people just feels very natural, like they're pretty great. Yeah, go for it. Some people make you feel uncomfortable. Maybe they have a political sign in their yard that you just can't handle. All right. Maybe they, maybe they blow their leaves in your yard and you're just, <laughs> fall's coming. You're trying to, do some counseling to get your emotional reservoir up. <laughs> Leaves come. Mm-mm. The little things, the big things. Jude and I were walking through our neighborhood one day and we noticed two homes and there was a sign in one person's yard pointing to the home across the street asking for forgiveness for the pile of trash in his front yard. There are divides everywhere. But what we see is Jesus break, using food to break through divides. So who comes to your mind? While you're thinking about that, I wanna invite our worship team to come up and go ahead and get ready, moment. We're gonna, we're actually gonna come to the Lord's table today. We're gonna receive communion together and uh, this act of receiving communion cannot live in this room. Uh, the idea of receiving the love of Jesus but not extending the love of Jesus. And I don't wanna heap guilt, that is not what this is, but I just feel so convicted myself about my insecurities, my own guilt about the things I've been inactive in in my neighborhood. The people that God has put me in close proximity with. May we find freedom from guilt. Again, take a deep breath. Huh. God is inviting us to be a disciple in our everyday life, to do what Jesus did. And the reason why we can have this conviction of invitation, even for those people that, we don't, that don't look like us or we don't agree with, is because in our sin, in rebellion against God, we've been invited to the table of God. And Jesus, in the Last Supper, gathered people around him. And the people that were gathered there were pretty messed up too. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was there. And Peter, who denied Jesus. And Thomas, who doubted. They're all, it's just all there. And Jesus welcomed them to the table. And this bread that we'll receive today represents the body of Jesus given for us. The blood represented in the juice, we'll dip it in the cup here, representing 
Jesus' blood shed for us for, for the forgiveness of our sins. We can extend our tables, metaphorically and literally, to others because, because we've been invited to God's table. Um, so may we not just be knowers of people around us. and Yes, may we also be prayers of people around us, but may we be people of invitation. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, an empty chair around you in this room will be one that one of those people you shared a meal with come to the table here together with a local church family. Let's all stand together today and we're gonna receive this bread. We're gonna drink this cup together.